You know, one of the, uh, t- to me anyway, I'm no authority on it, but for me, one of the most enduring and powerful images from all the ancient world is the image of the Greek hoplite soldier. You, you know him. He wears bronze armor, has a feather-plumed hat, a long spear, and a round shield. And uh, it was a development from ancient forms of warfare that, um, like Homer talks about him riding around on chariots and shooting arrows and all kind of crazy stuff. But that was not hoplite warfare. The hoplites developed uh, a special battlefield tactic called a phalanx, where each of these men with the round circular shield would stand shoulder to shoulder to a man next to him, and their shield would overlay the one on the left. So they created a tightly packed line that was almost impenetrable. I mean, with uh, this hoplite phalanx, some of the greatest battles in human history were won. Uh, For example, you know it, the battle at Marathon, when the outmatched Athenian hoplites uh, were victorious over the Persians. They, they say as many as 150 to 200,000 Persian soldiers were there at Marathon, and a, a far smaller Athenian force of these hoplite soldiers were able to win. Now, Ten years later, in 480 BC, the famous 300 Spartans made their last stand at Thermopylae and overwhelmed the Persians. This hoplite force is totally unlike anything else. Immortalized, I've given you a couple of examples on ancient shards of pottery, on frescoes, murals on the wall, and uh, in movies. It's amazing and powerful. But as successful as this warfare technique was, it was uh, prone to two weaknesses. And the first is basically the way it's laid out. And you can see it there. You, You see the men lined up with their spears down, and the shields overlap to the left. So the man at the far right of the phalanx was left partially exposed. There was no man to his right to cover the right part of his body. And enemies knew that. And so they would overload the right flank, break down the defense, and the onslaught would ensue. But there was actually an even more dangerous weakness. And it's actually one that you couldn't really prepare for. But the challenge was this, that as a phalanx of hoplite soldiers progressed down a battlefield, they would often come upon uneven terrain maybe some loose gravel underneath their feet. And if in their progress down the battlefield, one man were to lose his footing and fall, the impenetrable line was broken. The shields that relied on man-to-man pressure was done. Or if, as they were running across the battlefield, the left side of the phalanx got out ahead of the right side of the phalanx so that the line was broken, it was an easy win for their enemies. They could come through, overrun them, and overwhelm them. Uh, You could put it simply and say that the biggest weakness in ancient Greek hoplite warfare was the threat of disunity. These men got out of line, ununited, they'd lose. And in general, I try to be cautious about using military metaphors when we talk about the mission of the church. um, Because Jesus, you know, suffered and died on a cross. He wasn't the guy on his first appearance who came on a war horse. But I think the church of God is at the same risk as those ancient soldiers. That wherever you are, in whatever time and place, disunity always threatens the church's success in fulfilling the mission they've received from God. Whether that disunity takes roots in 
open factions and cliques in a church, or whether it's behind-the-scenes secretive gossip. Uh, Disunity is destructive. And because of that, this morning, we're going to see just how crucial it is that God's people guard the church's unity around the gospel. That it is essential. If we're going to be who God wants us to be as his people in a broken world, we must guard our unity around the gospel. And so uh, you should have your Bible open by now, but I want to show you how we guard unity. How do you do that? And I want to challenge you to take the initiative to do it for yourself. So are you at Titus chapter 3? Are you at verse 9? Okay, good. We're ready then. Let's do it. Titus 3 verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strifes and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject the factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. And when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All those who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Now, as Paul concludes his letter, uh, which is wild that we're finally to the end of it. We've been working our way here, and now we've just finished another book. Wow. I think we've got like 63 more to go. So he concludes, though, with some just normal, everyday instructions. And, And they're so amazing to me. Because they remind us that Paul and his friends were real people. They lived real lives. Paul had plans about where he was going to spend the winter. He's like a snowbird or something going down to Florida to uh, stay warm. You know, he had plans. And, And beyond that, Paul had taken the commission that Christ had given him as an apostle and slave so seriously that he was always strategizing how he could be more effective in taking the gospel to new places and in bringing churches into real maturity. And we're not going to look at verses 12 through 15 in real close detail, but I just want you to know the same God who was overseeing all the minute details of Paul's life, bringing him and his companions and assistants to greater faithfulness in ministry, is the same God who is guiding our church. And that gives me so much confidence. But before Paul could get there to those practical final concluding remarks, He gives Titus one more set of instructions for the church. And it really follows along from what we saw last week. I don't know if you were here last week. We talked about God's people and good works. And Paul had given Titus the instructions to command God's people to live lives characterized by good works towards the unbelievers all around them. From their godless governments to their pagan neighbors, God expects his people to live a life of good works. And we saw that those good works are motivated by a deep understanding of the gospel. That we were once ourselves foolish, he says. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. The gospel that takes root in a person's heart compels them to live a life of good works. Because of that, Paul's consistent theme, and I hope you've picked up on it, I've tried my best to draw it out, is over and over and over again to Titus. Preach the gospel, and the rest takes care of itself. People will live a life that's consistent with what they say they believe. 
And yet, I hope you saw in verse 9 that there always is a threat. That that gospel message that Paul says in verse 8 is good and profitable for all men could become kind of the background rather than the highlight of God's people's life together. In fact, he says that there are things that could distract them from the gospel, things that could divide them over it. And therefore, Titus needed to avoid them and reject them. And so you want to know how to guard the church's unity around the gospel? The first thing you have to do is avoid the things that distract us from the gospel. Avoid the things that distract us from the gospel. I hope you saw that in verse 9. And he identifies four things. I tried to find a more descriptive word than things. But they are four things that he identifies that are willing, that are tempting us to distraction. And the first thing he calls them is foolish controversies. Foolish controversies. And he follows that up quickly with genealogies. And these were apparently speculative discussions around minor biblical passages. The kind of passages that y'all are tempted and I'm tempted to skim over when we're reading through the Bible. You know, Abraham beget Isaac and Isaac beget Jacob. And you go all the way down and you're like, I get it. These guys had kids. And you skip over it. But in the first century, that was not the case. They weren't skipping over it, but they were diving deep into it. The fascination with genealogies was common in the Jewish world and in the church. You could read about it in 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 and 4. And Titus wrote his letter to Timothy while Timothy was in Ephesus. So all around the Mediterranean world, in both, in both Jewish environments and in pagan environments, there was an overwhelming obsession with genealogies. It was rooted in the fact that they believed that if you interpreted these genealogies allegorically or as metaphors, you would start to discover some secret and hidden knowledge, some hidden symbols that provided to you a deeper understanding of what these passages were all about. So the church would get around and, I don't know, well, what does this passage mean to you? What do you think he's really talking about here? But Paul said those kind of controversies are foolish. They lack good sense. They're just genealogies. There's no hidden meaning there. So avoid those things. And when you pair that with the second distinction he makes about the other thing that they're liable to be distracted by, uh, strife and disputes about the law, you start to see that there are a lot of conversations happening. Genealogies and hidden symbols. The obligation that new Christians have to obey the law of Moses. All sorts of things generating a lot of heat, but not a lot of light. And so Paul tells Titus that these things are unprofitable and worthless. Now, you think about what that means. They're unprofitable and worthless. They were arguing, but they weren't getting any spiritual benefit from it. And even if they won the argument, the thing they had won proved to offer nothing of value. It's worthless and unprofitable. There's no point, guys. It lacks sense. And I've never, I've been asked lots of crazy questions as a pastor. Just kind of level with you. Now, I don't think any of y'all, maybe one of you has asked me a crazy question. I'm not going to name your name. No, I'm just kidding. But you get asked questions. And I have never been asked a question about some hidden symbol in a genealogy. I never have. It's not something we're tempted by today, but we are still tempted to be caught up in foolish controversies. Things that would distract us. Uh, 
you've probably been a part of one, or you've at least seen one unfold in a Sunday school class. You know, they, they take the shape on minor biblical doctrines and points. Stuff like what versions of the Bible are appropriate for Christians to read. People will get crazy mad about that. What version of the Bible is best? You know, the identity of the Antichrist. People get really fired up about it. Uh, the gifts of the Spirit. What kind of behaviors are appropriate or inappropriate for Christians? These things cause so much controversy in the church, and at the end of the day, they're not worth it. Not much good comes out of it. On the other hand, it's not just minor points of religious doctrine. It's also cultural issues. You know, like a year ago, masks, more recently, vaccines. Christians get so fired up about those things, and who to vote for, conspiracy theories. You know, there are so many things vying for our attention, tempting us to be distracted from the gospel. And I wonder, how many Christians have lost friends over issues like this? Minor, minor points, things that are fairly insignificant from God's perspective. And if they haven't lost real-life friends, maybe they've lost online friends. They've been unfriended on Facebook, or at least unfollow. I've hidden people's posts. I'm guilty of it over these minor things, but sometimes you just got to Protect yourself, man. Garbage in, garbage out. I'm not going to deal with this. But at the end of the day, the danger is there. That if these things were to become the only thing a church talked about, if they majored on the minors, if they went to seed on things that were fairly insignificant, they fairly quickly run away from everything that's good and profitable. The challenge is that in the moment, those issues feel important. It feels life or death. Sometimes we even feel like to deny this point is to deny God himself. But the truth of it is, is that every minute we spend discussing something that is unprofitable and worthless is a minute we could have spent talking about that which is good and profitable to all. There are times to have hard conversations about minor points, but if that became the only thing we talked about, we'd be in trouble. Because of that, Paul told Titus to avoid these things. Avoid foolish controversies. The word he uses for avoid, it's a kind of a word picture. It literally means to go around something so as to avoid it. And it's that attitude you have when you're in your car. You see a pothole, and you steer clear of the pothole. Avoid it. It's what a ship captain does or should do when he sees an iceberg or a, a loading dock. You should steer clear of that thing, man. That's your job. It's what an airplane pilot does when he sees a storm up ahead and he reroutes to the north so that he doesn't drive us or fly us through lightning. Steer clear. Avoid it. And church, if we want to be God's people in a broken world, we need to learn to avoid the things that distract us from the good news of Jesus we got to become like Paul. He said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I made it my aim to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I put it like this, we need to become unapologetically all about Jesus. And some people don't like that. They think, oh, all you talk about is Jesus and the gospel. Like, let's get to the deep stuff. But that is all there is. There's nothing worth talking about besides Him. So instead of fighting about theological minutiae, and hot-button controversial issues, we ought to just think deeply on him. Who is he as the God-man, the eternal Son of God who existed with the Father from the creation of the world, 
but yet took on human flesh to live among us as our life, to take our weakness to himself. What do you think about his cross? Where after living a perfect life, he suffered and died for sinners like us. People who had nothing good in them to qualify them as worthy of God's love. What do you think about his resurrection and his ascension where God vindicated him and authenticated him as the one with all authority, with power over death, hell, and the grave. And we need to be busy. Busy. Not talking about doing it, but busy about sharing the good news with every man, woman, and child because we believe He's coming again. That's what ought to take up our focus. If we, if we thought about that deeply, if we talked about it constantly, if it unapologetically was the focus of our entire lives, we'd never run out of time and topics to discuss. We wouldn't need hot-button issues. We wouldn't need controversial minor points of doctrine. We'd have an eternity's worth of things to dwell and think about. So avoid the things that would distract us from the good news of Jesus. But the second thing is just as important because like those hoplite soldiers, you can't always just resist the enemy's advance. Sometimes you have to take the fight to them. And that's what Paul says next. He says God's people need to reject those who seek to divide us. And I believe Paul means here those people he's already identified back in chapter 1 as false teachers. You know, those who went around from house to house teaching the things they shouldn't teach for the sake of sordid gain. The guys that Titus was supposed to appoint overseers who would be able to refute those who spoke against the gospel. The deceivers who were among them. You know, Paul is talking clearly about them. They are the ones who divide. And he uses a word that's really interesting. He, my Bible says factious. Yours may say divisive. A divisive man or a factious man. And the Greek word is actually hereticos, and we know it as the word today, heretic. And originally this word, uh, hereticos, was a man who held to his own opinion. And so you might have your own particular view about something. And you might even find people who think like you, like-minded folks. And you might get together and form a party or a faction or a group around this unique particular idea. But the problem was that the personal opinions of these men were clear departures from the gospel that Paul had preached. So they might have been their personal opinions, but their personal opinions were a deviation from that which is true. And because of that, they had split the church in two between those who held to the gospel that Paul preached and those who had fallen in line behind these factious people. And so Paul says he needs to reject them. But his method for rejection is pretty cool, actually. Two steps. Not just, okay, you've departed from the faith, you're done. But the first step is to warn them. And Paul says that Titus needs to warn them twice. After a first and second warning, reject them. And this is pretty interesting. I mean, it tells us that even a person who's creating division where Jesus died to create unity isn't beyond God's offer of grace. That there's still a chance for a person. It doesn't matter how far you deviate from the truth. It doesn't matter how messed up your life gets. God always extends to you an offer of salvation. If you'll repent and return to what you know to be true, you can be restored. 
And so Paul gives Titus the task of admonishing or warning these divisive men. Uh, This attempt is a clear effort to show them the error of their thinking or the error of their life and to bring them back to the truth. I like the way one commentator said it. He says it's a pastoral attempt to reclaim them. They've deviated. They've wandered away. And we're taking it on ourselves to go after them and say, no, we're not letting you get away without a fight. This is where you're wrong, and this is why you're wrong, and we love you, and there's still forgiveness available to you. And I think that this attempt recognizes humbly that not all theological or doctrinal error is deliberate. This is, a, this is a challenge for people who take pride in their theology. Like, I'm one of those people. But as I think back about my life, and maybe you can think back too, it's like my, my understanding of God and His world has developed. There are things I believed a year ago, or five years ago, ten years ago, that I believe differently now. I've, I've developed. God has continued to grow me and shape me, and as I grow deeper in my understanding of His Word, and as I interact with y'all, and I, and I see what he does in your life. And as I get to a, a front row seat to God's greatest work of building his church where a church shouldn't be. It doesn't make sense that God could build a church in a world as crazy as ours. But he's doing it. And I, I believe differently about God now than I did even a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago. And I hope and I trust that my understanding is growing more biblical. But I acknowledge humbly that I could be led astray, that I could find myself believing things about God that weren't completely accurate or true. Maybe I read a book and heard something that sounded right, and I kind of assimilated that into my understanding, and I wondered a little bit. And I think people do that out of good intentions sometimes. People wander away from the truth. They read a book, or they see somebody say something on TV, or they come across something on the internet. And so everybody regardless of how far away they seem to have drifted, is deserving of another attempt to bring them back to the truth. You know, you, you could think about it like fences. We, we sometimes talk about theology as a fence. You know, uh, we are a Baptist church, and that's a pretty clear fence. If you're not a Baptist, there's other churches that are good, but this may not be for you. If you don't believe what we believe, that's kind of the entryway. But if you only think about theology as a fence, you start to run into trouble, and here's why. I've learned a little bit about fences watching y'all, and I helped Clinton put up a fence, and it was a terrible job. It's about what you'd expect from a guy who grew up at the beach, okay? <laughs> Just what do, you, what do you do with a guy from South Alabama? But the deal is, if, if you're a hobby rancher, you know, 20, 40, a couple hundred acres, I don't know. What do I know about this? But if you've got a small piece of land, a couple hundred yards of fence to manage, it's doable, even economical. But if you start to get into larger tracts of land, it becomes harder and harder to fence those boundaries. And for example, if you were the manager of the largest cattle ranch on the face of the earth, it's called the Anna Creek Station in South Australia, fences would do you no good. Here's why. It currently consists of 5.8 million acres and is seven times the size of the King Ranch. That's kind of big. I don't know a lot about fences. But I can tell you this, that they don't ride horses to round up their cattle. They ride dirt bikes, right? So we're talking a scale quite different than the average hobby farmer between Houston and Austin. You know, it's, it's different. It's different. And so they manage their cattle differently. 
rather than hemming them in with barbed wire, they have wells everywhere. And they trust that the cow is smart enough not to wander too far from the source of their life. They get caught too far out from the well, they're done for, so they stick close to the water. And I think that's the way theology is. That if, if we're trying to manage all the fences all the time, we're in trouble. But if we get our focus on the life-giving source, which is Jesus himself, we'll never wander too far. We'll stick close to him. If we make the gospel the main thing and keep it the main thing, we'll never get caught too far away. And even if we were, there's some guy on a motorcycle who's glad to come and round us up and say, hey, I heard you say this, and I just let's think this through a little bit, and let me show you something in the Bible. That's what Paul's talking about. Warn them, admonish them, make every attempt to bring them back to the source of their life, the deep well that is Jesus and the good news of his life, death, and resurrection. But then, if the guy doesn't listen to you, if the factious man doesn't repent, Paul tells him they must reject him. And this is a step beyond steering clear. It's a step beyond cold-shouldering. Surely, I think, reject means something like dismiss them. We might put it like this today, excommunicate them, or put them out from the church. Uh, Paul's instructions for this process that he lays out here, warn them twice, and then if they don't repent, put them out, is clearly dependent on Jesus' teaching. And sometimes you get an insight into this. Paul doesn't quote Jesus an awful lot, but I'm convinced, having studied through Titus, that Paul knew deeply Jesus' own teaching. And this is a clear example of it. Why don't you turn your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 18, and I'll show you. Matthew 18, 15. Matthew 18, 15. So Jesus is speaking in a little bit of a different context, not speaking to an established church, threatened to distraction and division, but he's speaking to his disciples. And he tells them in verse 15, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell him to the church. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If he refuses to listen to you, reject him. He becomes to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Put him out of the church. Now, This probably sounds harsh. I mean, we get told all the time from non-believing people, we see it in the news, that Jesus' main point was, judge not lest you be judged. And it kind of feels judgy to tell a person they're so wrong that they can't be a part of our church anymore. But but think about what Paul is saying. Uh, First, he says that this unrepentance, this unwillingness to be corrected, to hear the warning and admonition, the attempt to reclaim them to the truth. He he tells us that this unrepentance is a sign that even if by accident they wandered away from the well, if they were led astray, somebody put a rope around their neck and hauled them off, they have had a one-on-one 
personal confrontation with the error of their ways. And while they might have been ignorant before, now they know they're wrong, and they're doing it anyway. Paul says that person is perverted, or maybe your, your Bible says distorted. And this word means to be crooked or out of alignment with God's standard. And uh, I like the way one commentator put it, William Hendricks. He said, they aren't living or seeing straight. That's the condition of a person who refuses to heed an admonition and warning to return to the truth. Furthermore, by their refusal to repent, they move beyond an ignorance to a willful disregard for God's truth and God's commands. So they could have claimed ignorance. I didn't know any better, but thank you for pointing that out. I'm going to fall right back in line to, no, I hear what you're saying, but I couldn't believe in a God like that. Or the God I serve would never do something or say something like that. And so they go from ignorance to a willful disregard for God's word and his command. And Paul says clearly, they are sinning. That is sin, to disregard what God says. But finally, Paul says that they're self-condemned. All right, so we feel a little, we get heartburn over it. Because we feel like maybe we're judging them. And they'll tell you that. Who are you to tell me that what I believe to be true is not true? Who are you to tell me I can't do this? God is my judge. But Paul says they're self-condemned. They might get upset at Paul or Titus because they've been dismissed from the church. They're probably going to get mad at the people who voted to put them out. But at the end of the day, it's their own fault. They've got nobody to blame but themselves. They have been stubbornly unrepentant. They have disregarded a clear warning. And therefore, they need to be rejected, dismissed, put out. So there's your first point. Is that a little harsh to do that to them? Well, it would be, but what you're essentially doing is allowing them to pursue the life that they've already chosen for themselves. They want to live out of alignment with God. Well, all right, go do that. You are to me as a Gentile and a tax collector, somebody who's living out of alignment with God's Word. But then you take it a step further, and you go beyond just the individual, people that maybe we love, friends we've known a long time who deviate from the truth to a point where it's like you are unrecognizable. But then you start to think about it corporately. And you consider how a factious person, a person causing division because they've left the truth, affects the corporate body of the church. I mean, left unchecked, unconfronted, they compromise the whole integrity of the church just as one man stumbling in that phalanx's line opens the whole group of men to attack. That's the challenge with a person who's factious or divisive. Yeah, the church is called to speak the truth in love. That's Ephesians 4.15, and we ought to do that. And we're told to forgive even as we've been forgiven. And that is the ethos that should characterize our life together as a church. But at the end of the day, divisive people who reject the truth cannot be allowed to sow further discord among God's people. It's deadly. It's dangerous to be divided over issues that God is clear on. And so at the end of the day, you could say the welfare of the church, the whole glory of God in a broken world depends on the church being the church not allowing distractions and divisions to take root so that we forget that we're all about the gospel. The reality is this, and I kind of close our whole series out here, that we do live in a broken world. It's messed up. Um, talk about foolish controversies. That's the news. Just over and over and over, endless arguments about meaningless things. 
Politics is marked by tribalism. Everybody's got their own little faction, their own little group, their own party. And they see the world through those lenses. This is me and my people. That's you and your people. It's us versus them. The world's divided. And it's spinning apart. Something that's divided against itself can't stand. I think it was Jesus who said that. So, what do we do? How do we avoid being brought down to the world's level? Well, it won't be by relying on ourselves. We're going to be tempted to get distracted. It's just a fact of life. And we sometimes will be distracted. There are going to be people who try to divide us, and we'll end up divided sometimes. But if we want to join God in his mission, by announcing the good news of Jesus, the Son of God who became man, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, was raised from the dead for sins, if we want, to, we want to proclaim that, that will be the source of our unity. We'll guard the church's unity around that message, refusing to allow these other things to sideline us. So this morning, I, I want to challenge y'all, all of us, to think about unity from a personal perspective. That the unity of the church depends on each of us. Not just Brad, not just our deacons. They help but the unity of God's people really rests on each individual person. And I wonder, is your life defined by the gospel or by something else? Is your life defined by the gospel or something else? And what I mean by that is, are you totally captivated by the fact that God sent his son Jesus for you? Does that take up your waking thoughts? Do you process your life, the decisions you make through that lens, that I'm a creature of grace. Everything I have is a gift from above. What am I going to do with my life? Well, I'm going to turn it right back around and offer it to God as a living sacrifice. Everything I am and all that I have, God, is yours. That's a life that's captivated by the gospel. Your waking thoughts, the things that come out of your mouth, the desires of your heart are all wrapped up in what God wants to glorify himself by the announcement that Jesus saves sinners. You know, most people get distracted from that. They, do, they get distracted by politics because the loudest voice is the voice we hear. They get distracted by money, career. They get distracted by hobby horses, you know, personal beliefs about individual issues, soapboxes, pet doctrines. Is your life defined by your identity in Jesus? And if it isn't, what, what is keeping you from having your life defined by him? You know, what would you have to change so that it became defined by him? What behaviors would you have to give up? What deeply held beliefs would have to change? What habits, what relationships, what words would have to be eliminated from your vocabulary so that everybody around you, not just your church people, because you see them a couple hours a week, but I'm talking about the people who know you best, your family, your coworkers. So they believe this person is unapologetically all about Jesus. Don't go to lunch with this person because all they're going to do is tell you about Jesus and how good he's been to them. Don't get stuck with them in the elevator. Don't get stuck with them in the hallway. Don't dare accept their offer of a ride. You are a captive audience. They're going to talk your ear off. No, that's what we're talking about, to become so defined by who Jesus is and what he's done in our life that everybody knows it. You know, maybe you think about conversations 
relationships that have been broken because of minor conflicts, foolish controversies. You know, our church has a history. We've been, we've been here 80 years. And, and I don't know for, for sure, and I, I, honest, I promise I'm not thinking of any particular circumstances at all. But I would just guess, because I've been around church people and I've served in church now for over 15 years, that there's some conflicts in our past. There's some hurt feelings still left. There are some relationships that got destroyed in church. And I wonder, can God use a church that has unresolved conflict in its past? I mean, he probably can, but couldn't he use a church that was completely united, that all the hatchets had been buried, that there were no more skeletons in the closet? Don't you think he could use that kind of church better? And so I wonder what relationships need to be patched over from the time that you won an argument, but you lost your brother, or you lost your sister. And I know that as I think about the people who are watching online, people who are here in person, that to hear the pastor say, our lives need to be defined by the gospel, is sort of the same old, same old. That's what they're always saying. And you've heard it a thousand times. Some of you have taken it to heart. And you heard it, and you've heard it today, and you're like, I got to get back on track. I got to come back to the well. I got to stop wondering. I got to get back to the truth. But maybe there's some people here who've heard it time and time and time again, and their hearts have grown hard to it. It just kind of runs past them without any effect on their heart and on their mind. And because the cost of following Jesus to that extent seems pretty high to you, the things you'd have to change about your life, the beliefs you'd have to give up seem like a pretty high cost, and you're not completely sure that you want to carry it. But Jesus knew that you'd feel that way. I mean, I would go so far as to say Jesus knew you would feel that way today, June 6, 2021. He knew that you'd struggle with that, and, and he's known your struggle all along, and yet he still spoke to people like you, and he'd speak to you the same way if he were here today. He says, come to me. Well, he commands it. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Truth of it is this. Jesus calls his people in every time and place, whether it's the first century island of Crete or the 21st century small town Luling, Texas, to the same thing. To be so captivated by the truth of the gospel that the only thing they want to do is give up the stuff that's distracting them and dividing them from it. They want with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength to be defined by who he is and what he's done. And I believe he's calling to you today too. He wants you to be identified in that way. And if I can help you figure that out, count the cost, and with wide eyes, make the decision to follow Jesus, I'd love to do it. I can guarantee you, I'll stand shoulder to shoulder with you and fight with you and fight for you so that you can know Jesus. Will you all pray with me, church?